and I would often be on the, uh, the metro train, uh, the mass transit in Washington. And I remember one time in particular, I was, I was in this train car and it was filled with people and they were from all over the world. And uh, the, the train went into uh, a tunnel starting to go underground and the, the lights dimmed a little bit. And, and it just struck me that everybody in that train was perhaps in their own little world. Because in Washington, D.C., what matters is, uh, is who you are, uh, what country you're from, uh, what branch of the government you're associated with, what branch of the military you're associated with. Perhaps who you know, the people you know who are powerful and influential. And it just struck me, you know, suppose that I weren't getting off on the next stop and I could turn to somebody and start a conversation about Jesus. How, in fact, would I start that conversation? We're going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning, and we're going to be uh, studying uh, the short time that the Apostle Paul spent in Athens. <clears throat> and we're already a little bit familiar with this because uh, during his second missionary journey, uh, Paul, of course, left uh, Thessalonica and Berea as, as a result of troublemakers and was, was sent to Athens. At this particular point in time, Athens was a large city, but interestingly, it was not as large as Thessalonica. He spent only a short time in Athens before traveling further south in the province of Achaia. And shortly after arriving in Corinth, he likely wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians that we recently finished. So that kind of gives it all in context. While Paul was in Athens, he gave a speech at an ancient Greek court called the Areopagus. The speech is different from some of Paul's other speeches. It's different, for example, from his synagogue sermon that he gave in Antioch in Pisidia in Acts 13, because there he was, he was speaking to Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, and he was able to make full use of the Hebrew Bible. It's also a little bit different than this brief speech that uh, Barnabas and Paul gave in the, sec in the next chapter, chapter 14 in Lystra. While in Athens, as in Lystra, Paul spoke with a pagan audience, pagans. Unable to assume familiarity with the Hebrew scriptures, he started with the basic principles of God as creator and Lord over creation who commanded all people everywhere to repent. And with that introduction, we'll read the passage. We're going to start in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Here then is the word of the Lord. 
Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new preaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about all this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul is in Athens, 
and he preached this, what history would prove to be an utterly momentous and exemplar speech. We'll take this line by line then starting at the beginning of the passage and the first part of this passage explains to us the circumstances under which Paul was brought to speak at the Areopagus. So moving then back, back to verse 16, we'll, we'll re read this paragraph by paragraph and then we'll take it line by line. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within them, within him, excuse me, as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Well, Paul is in Athens. Paul is in Athens alone. He is waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him since, since they stayed beside since he, was sent to, since he was sent to Athens from Berea. So here's Paul alone and, and the first thing he does is he goes, finds a synagogue, goes to the synagogue and reasons with the people there about Jesus. And that was, that was Paul's normal practice whenever he would go to a new city, except Athens is a little bit different. Verse 18 then, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are preaching. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Well, so here we have Paul among philosophers. In fact, the two prominent schools of philosophy in the ancient world at the time. In verse 18, uh, <clears throat> the Epicureans had a materialistic, godless worldview, and they saw pleasure gained by modest living as the highest goal in life. The Stoics were pantheistic, and what that meant to the ancients is that reality was the same as divinity. That everything real was the same as everything divine. But they had no distinct God. And they valued harmony with nature, taking things as they came and not being controlled by desire for pleasure or by fear of pain. You know, hence, you know, when we Hear, hear the word Stoic and Epicurean today, we can kind of relate to that. So in verse 18, uh, they, disparage, they disparagingly spoke of him as a babbler. Inter interesting word. Uh, literally, it means a seed-picking bird, 
up. The Greek is uh, spermologos, and it was about somebody who just picked up and passed along tidbits of useless knowledge while at the same time acting important. So this is what they thought of Paul. And so they were going to bring him to the Areopagus to learn more about what he was talking about. Areopagus uh, in Greek uh, translates in English either to Hill of Ares or Mars Hill. Ares was the god of war in Greek mythology and then Mars would have been the same god in Roman, methi meth Roman mythology. And the Areopagus was on a hill and it was located a little bit to the southwest of the Acropolis. <clears throat> it was a court and it was, it was a court that did a little bit of everything. They, they tried crimes, but they also listened to the various philosophers. And at the time that Paul is in Athens, uh, Rome uh, solidly ruled this area of modern-day Greece that's called Achaia. But because of the prestige that Athens had as a city, uh, the Athenians were largely allowed to rule themselves. That said, however, the Areopagus wasn't really a court as such at this point in time, although occasionally they would try a high-profile murder there. It was mainly a place of philosophical discourse, so that as Paul was brought before the Areopagus, he was brought because people were curious and wanted to hear what he had to say, not, not because he was being forced to go there and not because he was under arrest. Verse 21 is interesting. I'll go ahead and reread that verse. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing of something new. So what Luke, uh, the author of Acts, is doing here is he's taking this word babbler and he's turning it back upon the Athenians. But it's an especially rich verse. Uh, the word babbler in Greek never actually occurs in that verse. And, and many have noted, my, my ear for Greek is not good enough, but many have noted that this is arguably the only verse in the New Testament that is written in Attic or Classical Greek as, oppo as opposed to the, uh, the, the Koine or the Conversational Greek of the time. Now, what is significant about that is that Luke is reminding us that even as he was poking gentle fun at the Athenians, that that the Athenian philosophers would occasionally even be poking fun at themselves. And so this introduction then provides the background for Paul's speech at the Areopagus. It is a wonderful speech. 
it occupies only 10 verses of scripture. And, and as we're about to discover, those 10 verses really pack a wallop. Paul's speech is concise and dense. Luke was probably not present because this is not one of the four we passages uh, in Acts of the Apostles where we know that Luke was present. Uh, it is therefore difficult to know how precisely Luke would have captured Paul's actual words and whether or not he summarized them. That is, whether or not the actual speech that Paul made consists of just 10 verses. Even so, this is exactly what the Lord has saved for us. So let's, let's take this speech line by line then. In verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Think about that. How many times have you heard a non-Christian person describe themselves as religious or spiritual? You see? Right there in the first verse of Paul's speech, we, we can see that it's relevant to us even in the 21st century. <clears throat> when I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. This, this is real interesting in itself. There is a story and the story goes something like this, and it's really more a legend than historical fact. During the 6th century BC, this would have been 600 years or more before Paul was in Athens, Athens was struggling with a serious plague. And they brought in a priest or a seer from Crete as a consultant, if you would, to figure out what to do about this plague. And so this is what his advice was. He says, well, what you're going to do is you're going to bring in some black sheep and you're going to bring in some white sheep and just kind of disperse them around the city of Athens. And wherever one of these sheep lays down, uh, the statue that's closest to which the sheep lays down, you're going you're gonna to make an offering to that particular statue. You know, so, so they had all these sheep, and, and some of the sheep didn't lay down close to any particular statue, in which case the Athenians didn't quite know what to do. So they, they, would, they would erect a statue, and it may have been known at the time. But 
what happened is, is the city of Athens uh, wound up with lots of statues of uh, gods and goddesses, some of which were known and some of which were unknown. And the other thing that would happen is, is they would sometimes erect a statue to a known god, but then, then over the centuries, you know, the, uh, the name that, that they had engraved in, into the stone would wear off, and so at that point they just attach a plaque to the statue, a bronze tablet, you know, and say, this, this, is, this god is unknown. Wow, wow. Un unknown gods. But it's interesting because the one true God of the universe was in fact unknown to them, right? Moving on then to verse 24, then God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way or grope their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This is perhaps the densest portion of the speech, and so, and so bear with me as we take this apart verse by verse, perhaps at one point, even clause by clause. In verse 24, God is both the creator of the world and everything in it. We know that. As the Lord of heaven and earth, God is also actively involved in his creation by ruling over it. So our God is not a distant God. Our God is also a present God. Paul said all of that in verse 24. The Athenians built beautiful temples and statues of their gods. Paul reversed this by stay, stating that God did not live in temples built by man. When King Solomon was dedicating his temple, uh, he said in 1 Kings chapter 8, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and even the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. In verse 25 then, we learn that God does not need anything that man could provide. We have nothing to give to God. On the contrary, he is the great provider. We heard this last week when, when Pastor Matt was, was preaching about, uh, about the God that gives rather than the God that gets or, or the God that would, would take. We have nothing 
to give to God, and God himself is all about giving. In fact, if you will allow me, I'm going to read a, a passage from Psalm 50, which I think summarizes that up near perfect. And, and just to keep the context, I'm going to read several verses. So I'm going to start in, uh, in Psalm 50, verse 7, and I'm going to read all the way through to verse 15. It, just, it tells us about God the giver. And you, 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 you have to listen to the, to the criticism here and then, and then just kind of prepare yourself for the final verse of this passage. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. The God who is there is the God who gives. And, and this is what Paul is, is explaining in simple terms uh, to his audience at the Areopagus. In verse 26 we read, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. And we know that the one man he's talking about is Adam. But within the single verse, considering the context in which Paul is preaching, he is saying far more than that. To quote one of the commentators I used in, in preparing the sermon, F.F. F. Bruce, the Athenians might pride themselves on being from the soil of their native Attica, but this pride was ill-founded. All mankind was one in origin and created by God and descended from a common ancestor. This removed all imagined justification for the belief that Greeks were innately superior to barbarians. And it removes all justification for comparable beliefs today neither in nature nor in grace, neither in old creation nor in the new, is there any room for ideas of racial superiority. And so in this simple verse, you know, Paul was gently, again, rebuking his audience for their sense that because they were Athenians, they were superior 
to the rest of the civilized world because they were not. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This is similar, at least in content, to what Paul wrote in uh, Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. When, when Paul wrote his, his letter to the Romans, uh, he was writing to the Christian church, the earlier, the newborn Christian church in Rome. They were, they were believers. And so Paul used a slightly harsher tone in his letter to the Romans than he used here. Uh, however, he, he still maintains that, that the Greeks are responsible. What we're talking about here is general revelation. We all know, just intuitively, we, you know, we, you know, we, look, at a, we look at a beautiful sunset. Uh, we, 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 see something, we, we see something good or perhaps even something bad happening that we just can't understand. And we know there is a God that is active among us. We, we just know it. And, and so that's kind of where Paul is starting there in verse 27. And then in verse 28, he provides his proof. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Here Paul is using two quotations from philosophy that would have been well known to his audience at the time. And the first citation, interestingly, is probably from a hymn to Zeus, the chief god, from the writings of none other than Epimenides. Remember Epimenides and the black sheep and the white sheep? It's the, it's the same writer here. What is interesting is none of Epimenides' writings are extant to us. That None of his own writings are available. We only have him at this point in quotation, and the earliest we can get, now Epimenides, as I said, lived during the 6th century BC. The earliest we can get to the actual quotation is from the writings of an ancient astronomer whose name was Theodore of Mopsuestia, which was a town on the southern Turkish coast not far from uh, where Paul grew up, and, and he wrote, a grave have fashioned for thee, holy and high one. The lying Cretans 
who are all the time liars, evil beasts, idle bellies, but thou diest not, for to eternity thou livest and standest, for in thee we move and have our being. I was actually get, getting my philosophers wrong. Uh, uh, Theodore was actually a, he was a Syrian Nestorian uh, commentator. Uh, Nestorianism is a uh, fallacy, if you would, that, that the divine person and the, uh, the physical person of Jesus are separate. Never, nevertheless, he did write a commentary, and we have a partial commentary from him on Acts of the Apostles, and he quoted this. What's interesting about this passage that you perhaps noticed in passing was the statement that Cretans are all liars. Paul used that same passage in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, and so we're sure that this little, these verses would have become familiar to Paul by the time that he spoke at the Areopagus. But then the, the second passage, for we are indeed his offspring, that comes from an astronomer. Now this guy is the astronomer, okay? And it's, 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 it's Eratus of Soli. And this actually pops up in his, his only writing that we have is a treatise on astronomy. But in those days, you'd, if, you're, if you're an astronomer, you're also a poet because the only acceptable way of writing about anything was to really put it in some kind of poetic format. And so he started his astronomical treatise with a hymn to Zeus. And this is what he wrote. From Zeus let us begin. Him do we mortals never leave unnamed. Full of Zeus are the streets and all the marketplaces of men. Full is the sea and the havens thereof. Always we all have need of Zeus. For we are also his offspring. The phrase that Paul quoted and he, in his kindness unto men, giveth favorable signs and wakeneth the people to work, reminding them of livelihood. So what Paul is doing here is he has, he has as you would, he's co-opted two passages from popular philosophy in first century Athens. And he's shown how he can apply those passages to his sermon about God, the one God, the one true God at the Areopagus. Uh, to use Pastor Matt's words, Paul is clearly meeting the Athenians from where they are at. Let's then conclude the speech. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. Since they are God's sons and daughters that Paul just explained in verse 28, the Athenians should no longer behave like pagans. 
the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Everything changed with Jesus. Everything changed with Jesus. Now there is no excuse. Because he fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The man to which the Apostle Paul is referring to obliquely here is clearly Jesus and Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The idea of resurrection was a category that just did not mesh really in any way at all with Greek philosophy. The Athenians would have been shocked by this idea. And this is where Paul's speech to the Areopagus concludes. There, contrary to some commentators, there is no evidence that Paul was cut off from completing the speech at this time, because when you look at the speech as a whole, that forms an apt conclusion. Because as Paul wrote later in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, uh, the resurrection is arguably the very found, the resurrection of Jesus is the very foundation upon which our faith rests. And so Paul ended on that very foundation. And then Luke gives us a brief conclusion. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So the, the response from the Athenians was lukewarm. It wasn't a slam dunk. You know, you know, some believed and some just went along on their way. And there's no mention of, of any baptisms here, nor is there any mention of Paul having planted a church in Athens. In fact, if we, if we go back to 1 Corinthians, and now in the final chapter, chapter 16, Paul wrote that the household of Stephanus in Corinth were the first converts in Achaia. So, so it's, it's, it's clear that uh, Paul had to wait until he got down to Corinth to really establish a church. With that said, there were, there were a number of believers, and two of them, Dionysius and, and a woman named Damaris, are specifically named. And it's, it's interesting that the early uh, church fathers uh, really revered these people. 
and and there are there are stories around him. One one of which is that uh, Dionysius and uh, and Damaris were uh, were husband and wife, but we don't know that for sure. What a great passage that is. Let's let's look at just several application points here. So when we become believers like Paul, Jesus commands us to deliberately and purposefully share the gospel with others. But how we do this will depend upon our audience. When sharing the gospel with Jews or Muslims, we could make use of the Old Testament. But with people who have little exposure to the Bible, we will need to speak in even simpler terms, like Paul. The contrast between Paul's two great speeches in Acts, his, his synagogue speech <coughs> in Pisidian Antioch, and his speech at the Areopagus really show us just how different uh, two testimonies can be. And yet they were both relevant to the audiences that were being served. Second application point. Not everyone believes in God, although ironically, atheism is itself a religion. When Paul opened his speech with men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He was not just commenting on the intellectual environment of the city, in order to seek a common ground with his audience. Yes, he was doing that. But more to the point, he was also suggesting that they ultimately wanted to find the one true God. When we don't have the one true God, when we lack God, there, there, is, there is an emptiness in our being that can only be filled through the knowledge of God. And so this explains why Paul would say that the Athenians were even groping after God. You know, they had all these distractions, but they just needed the one true God. They had to have him. So what does this tell us? It tells us that before we are ready for the gospel, we must first believe in a God who is both the creator and Lord of the universe. You know, you know, we, you know, we have to start with that belief, that basic belief before the gospel itself even, even makes sense to us. This happens when our minds and hearts respond to the world in which we live. Again, this is general revelation. It's there for everybody. So, how does this apply to us as believers? Prior to sharing the gospel with anybody, a frank discussion of where they are with God and life in general may be helpful. Again, just the importance of just the relation the relationship or the relational part of evangelism. And then the third application point. We do not always see the fruit of our ministry in our lifetimes, and certainly Paul never 
was able to see the fruit of his ministry in Athens. Uh, because the response to his speech at the Areopagus was mixed. Even so, this is interesting, the text of his speech is now inscribed, remember there are only 10 verses, and the text of the speech is now inscribed on a bronze tablet at the foot of the path leading up to the Areopagus. And as though it would have mattered to Paul at all, Paul and Dionysius, the Areopagite, now have streets named after them in Athens. So, so things have changed in Athens. So the word struck for eternity, the words stuck for eternity, even though it wasn't obvious at the time. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful thing? And so that is Paul's speech to the Areopagus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and this useful and practical example of Paul's speech from the Areopagus. Thank you for equipping us to share the gospel with all different kinds of people. We pray that when the time comes, you would give us the perfect words to say. And if the results of our evangelism are not immediately clear, Heavenly Father, we pray for patience. Soli Deo Gloria. Through Jesus Christ, amen.